We've been uh, working through this series called The Portrait in the book of John, and this morning we're in John chapter 2. It took us six weeks to get through John chapter 1, so if you're new to New Hope, you know what you're in store for. Um, this uh, particular study that we're in, we called it The Portrait because John says in John 1.18 that no one has ever seen God, yet Jesus explains God. So we're calling it The Portrait because Jesus is making brushstrokes, if you will, on a big canvas showing us what God the Father looks like. And by the time we get to the end of book of John, we'll be able to see what is this portrait of God? What are these components that make up God the Father? This particular morning, I'm asking myself this question, what does God's provision look like? Because of the question that comes popping out of this passage in John chapter 2, because God's at a wedding. Jesus shows up at a celebration. When my wife and I got married, um, we had very little dimes to our name. Matter of fact, we went down the aisle with just about $100 in our pocket, and I don't think it was much more than that. And when we received gifts from people, wedding gifts, we actually cashed some of those in to pay bills. I saved for months to buy our engagement ring, so I can identify with this couple this morning that's in this passage that we're about to look like. It looks like they don't have a lot of resources either because they run out of supplies in the midst of their wedding, and Jesus has to intervene for them. Of the 36 recorded miracles in Scripture, this is the first one. And we know that there were many more because John ends his book by saying, at the end of John, there were many other things which Jesus did. I suppose if they were written down, the entire world wouldn't contain them. So we know there were many, but there's 36 that are recorded, and this is the first one. And it happens to be Jesus working with the fruit of the vine. We're going to look at alcohol this morning and how he intercedes at a wedding and Jesus makes wine. So this will be an interesting study for you regardless of your background or if you grew up in church or not, just to see how Jesus handled this situation. So you join me, you'll see the passages up on the screen and it's also, of course, in your Bible. Um, You can follow along in John chapter 2 or the Bibles that are in the pew racks. John chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So the third day, to me, it appears that this is the third day after Jesus' baptism. There's others that say, no, that probably isn't the case. He was driven out into the wilderness, but there's two different ways of looking at it. But when you look back at John chapter 1, you see it says the next day and the next day and the next day. There's a sequence going on. This says the third day. Whether or not that's the case, we know that Jesus in John chapter 1, he goes through the baptism, he's declared by the disciples to be the Messiah, they start following him, and then we find him in the northern part of Galilee, this area called Cana, and he's at a wedding. So a wedding in the first century was a major social event. For us, it's a big deal. Obviously, we celebrate weddings wholeheartedly, but in the first century culture, the entire town was invited to a wedding celebration. So I don't know if you've been to a wedding that big before, and I don't know how big Cana was at this time, but this is a very big event. Lots of singing, lots of dancing. There's a real flow to the event. And it's actually almost seven days long. Some of them were shorter than that, but a really full blowout wedding went for a feast of seven days. You think you've been to a long wedding. You try doing one for seven days. This modern weddings, we understand, are paid for traditionally by the bride's family. But if you were living in the first century, you would find that it wasn't the groom's family paying for it. It was the groom himself. 
the groom had the responsibility to put together all the resources for months in advance, and he better save up well. And because this required him to do a lot of planning. Can you imagine if you had to feed an entire town for throughout, not just one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, but for the full length of the feast? That's a lot of advanced planning to do. Now, people pitched in, obviously, but the groom had responsibility to provide certain provisions. And one of those was wine, as you're going to see in a minute. So the groom was responsible for the expenses, is responsible for the planning, and he had to plan way in advance so it wouldn't bankrupt him. So months in advance, guys check out on weddings today, they let the girls do all the planning, but the guy had the responsibility to do all the planning for this event. So as we get closer to the wedding, we see that there's a culmination because for them, the betrothal period was part of the wedding. From the very moment that the groom asked for the woman's hand in marriage, when he went to the father and sought out permission to marry her, all the way up to the point of the wedding, they were considered legally married from that point forward to the actual consummation of the marriage. So there's a legal binding relationship. The Mishnah, which is a historical document that the Jews use, tell us that virgins were always married on Wednesdays. Widows were always married on Thursdays. So in this particular setting, we see that this is probably a middle-of-the-week Wednesday wedding in which the groom would have finished his home, completely built it, and prepared it. And then he would lead his entourage all the way through the town, carrying torches, because they did it at night, so it was a real processional. They'd carry torches up to her house, meet her, some kind of salutation was made, and then they would escort the bride and her, all of her attendants back to his home. And that's where the celebration would take place, probably out in the courtyard as well as in the house, and it would spill over into the streets. So we find here at this particular wedding that the mother of Jesus is there. And John never refers to Mary by her name. You'll see that as we work through the book of John. He always calls her the mother of Jesus, and she's apparently more than just a guest here. She's aware of the situation going on, and she starts giving directives. So she's got some kind of a tight relationship with the family. But also, this couple invited Jesus to their wedding. Can you imagine putting that on your guest list? You send out a save-the-date note and says, by the way, Jesus is going to be there. I think in this setting here, Jesus is not real well-known at this point. But nonetheless, he's invited. Perhaps he's a relative, we don't know, but he's coming with his disciples. This tells me something about Jesus. He is not a recluse. He's not someone who hides out. He seems to love social events. As a matter of fact, as you work through Scripture, you see Jesus showing up at different parties. I notice him showing up at Zacchaeus' house. He's at Lazarus' house. He's at the tax collector's house where there's celebrations in his honor. He shows up, but also at this social event. So Jesus seems to love going to celebrations, especially in this social setting. I think Jesus has a vibrant, fun personality. When I look at Scripture, I see that it says that he's full of the fruits of the Spirit, the joy of the Spirit just overwhelms him. And so I see that Jesus is probably just a really fun guy to be with. In verse 3, it says that Jesus' mother is now going to speak to him about the situation. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now remember what I told you, in a social setting, in this era, this is a very big deal. To run out of a supply in the midst of a wedding. Now there's a manner in which only moms can speak to their sons. 
In a situation like this, dads typically would just say to the son, hey, get in your car, run down to the store and buy blank, whatever. Moms have to be more delicate to their adult sons. Rather than telling them what to do, they have to present the problem. So you see Mary, this is a true maternal statement. She's just making an observation and expecting Jesus to do something with it. They have no wine. It is the death of a party when you run out of refreshments, especially in a setting where there's an open bar. And this is an open bar setting. Wine is provided for everyone. So in the first century culture, this is huge. This would be like someone forgetting the wedding cake. You just don't show up at a reception and not have a wedding cake in our culture, right? So whoever messed that up would be marked for a long time. So for the groom to run out of a refreshment like this, this would stain his reputation. This open bar setting in the midst of a wedding feast that lasted an entire week it was really necessary for the groom to have adequate provisions. Do you know that in some settings, in very devout weddings, they could actually bring a groom up on charges and fine him if he failed to meet the needs of all the guests? Because you just didn't host an event like this unless you can take care of your, take care of your guests. So there's a big cost financially, and there's a big cost socially for this event to unfold the way it is. At the very top of the refreshment list is the wine. It's very important to these settings, among other things that they feasted on. So in a close-knit community like this, this would never be forgotten. You would find this to be a stain on the reputation of the newlyweds. So understand this with me. Wine is a staple drink at this period of time, in the Middle East especially. It was served at all the meals Matter of fact, when they would serve wine to the children, typically they would water it down, not always for the adults. But you can find situations in historical writings where wine was watered down to two-thirds part water, one-third part wine. But many times it was served pure. And in a social setting, especially in one like this, you would find good wine being served on the front end. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But I want to be really clear, the Bible does not forbid wine drinking. As a matter of fact, it condones it in some places, especially when you see Paul talking to Timothy because he had stomach issues and he was condoning drinking wine. It condemns drunkenness, though. Absolutely says, do not abuse anything to excess. Don't take it into such a degree that it has control of your life. It does not condone drunkenness in any way whatsoever. But I also don't want you to think of Jesus as like he's showing up at a frat party and tapping a keg. That's not what's going on here, okay? This is not Jesus coming to play bong. If you adults don't know what that is, ask the students later. They can tell you. But this is not that kind of setting. Think of this like a social event. Think of like a black tie affair. It's a very important event for the community. Now remember, this is not something that you can use, this passage, as an excuse for getting tanked. I just want to give you a context here. Personally, I've never consumed alcohol. I had a, a one drink when I was 18. My sister took me out to celebrate my 18th birthday back before the law was 21, and my mom was so mad at her. I just never had an interest in it personally. Um, I grew up in watching alcohol abused and used and misused, 
And so I just decided, eh, I don't need it. It doesn't taste all that great to me anyways. And people that I talked to that tried it, um, wanted me to try it, constantly were saying, well, you'll get used to it. Just You have to acquire a taste for it. I was thinking, why do I want to teach myself to like something? I don't need to do that. So I just personally, just so you know where I'm at, I'm coming at it from that standpoint. I don't have any problem with people drinking wine, but myself personally, I just choose not to go there. Now, I want you to understand this setting Jesus has performed no miracles at this point. No one has seen him do anything miraculous. And in this setting, we're told in verse 11 that this is the beginning of his signs, meaning his very first miracle. Now Mary, of all people, knew, because she's the mother of Jesus, what he's capable of. Not to the degree of these miracles, obviously, but she was told by the angels He would be the promised one. He would be the Messiah. Simeon, Anna announced it in the temple. And more recently, John the Baptist declared who he was. And now he's got all these individuals following him who are saying he's the Messiah. So it appears that Mary is prompting Jesus to reveal himself publicly. Now this is a remarkable setting. I want you to see this, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. Do you know that Jewish moms are not to be argued with? Absolutely not. I have friends who grew up in Jewish families, and they absolutely just, you just don't go to Dukes with your mom if you're in a Jewish family. They usually win the arguments. So I wonder if Jesus had like a big sigh because he's got this Jewish mom who's bringing this issue up to him. I see what looks like Jesus being abrupt with his mom. But he's not, and I want to show you what's going on here. There's a shift in the relationship. So when he says woman, this is a very polite response in their culture. This is not going to the intimate part of saying mom or mother, but when he uses the word woman, it's like in English when we use the word ma'am. So he's polite. He's not being abrupt. But he's saying something here about the relationship when he says, what does this have to do with us? There's a shift in the mother-son relationship that takes place here. Literally in Greek, what to me and you is the question that's being asked. Matter of fact, this occurs at other points in Scripture. David used it. Other individuals in the Old Testament use it. I'll give you an example of it. When David is king over Israel, and there's an individual who comes to him and wants him to kill some men that are in their country to carry out an execution. And David challenges him on the basis of the relationship and uses the same words that Jesus used. Look on the screen. 2 Samuel 19.22 David then said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should say this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? Literally, I know who's in charge. That's what Jesus' response is. This is a, uh, an effect, it's a rhetorical statement. It's a rhetorical question, and it has the effect of distancing Mary and Jesus. I know what's going on here, and we're not of the same focus. Woman, we are not of the same focus. Your focus is this. This is not my priority. My priority is different. So he's politely informing her that the relationship is no longer what it was. This is the way John MacArthur sums it up. You'll see his quote on the screen. His public ministry had begun and earthly relationships would not determine his actions. 
So immediately his response is, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. I'm going to act on God's timetable. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. You and I are not of the same priority. That's your priority. This is not mine. So Jesus makes it very clear He's got a different timetable. And so John introduces a new thought for us. At this point, he uses the phrase, the hour. And you'll see this occur throughout the book of John in which the hour that Jesus is marching towards, the hour in which he's crucified, this period of time near the end, he's on God's timetable. So Mary is responding what you see next in this way. I got the picture. I understand. See what she does now. She's aware that he's not saying no. She's not ignoring him. She turns to the servants. Look with me at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, apparently, Mary had some degree of authority in this setting because she's commanding servants at someone else's house. And she's turning to them and giving them direction. Don't picture this as Mary ignoring Jesus. This is a point at which she's acknowledging He's going to act independently, and she's surrendering it to him. Whatever he deems appropriate, Mary is willing to put it in his hands. And this is the point at which you see Jesus act. This is so appropriate for us. There are things that we try and orchestrate and fix ourselves, and at this point when Mary steps back and says, whatever, I got the picture, it's in your hands, whatever you determine to do. I'll step away. So we see Mary stepping away, surrendering it, and Jesus then takes command and steps in. Look with me at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So I've got my stone water pot here made of pure stone. Look how strong I am. This is a 15-gallon water pot, so double it in size, 20 to 30 gallons, six of them. You need to understand the setting in which these are being used because there's some very clear social rules about how they use these ceremonial water pots. That's what it tells us. Ceremonial water pots used for the custom of purification, so there's stone water pots. The Jews carved them literally out of stone, for the purpose of the ceremonial washing, how long would that take to carve six 30-gallon water pots? They believed that clay water pots, once they were used, needed to be smashed and thrown away because they were not pure. But stone water pots are pure. And so there were some social rules for this custom of purification. In the midst of a wedding celebration, and in the beginning, and in the end, and during it, they had to constantly wash. Wash their arms, wash their hands, wash their feet, wash their legs. This is a process of legalism for them. So think in terms of like how we use a baptism tank. We see this as a place of ritual cleansing, if you will. This was their ritual cleansing, the place they went to get clean not just to wash the dirt off, but they believed it made them more pure. This is how it's referred to, how much it was a part of their culture. When you see on the screen in Mark 7.1, the Pharisees are talking with Jesus about this very issue, about washing. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. So at a very devout wedding in the first century, they would wash themselves many times throughout the course of the event. That's why they had so many water pots there. And they're typically set off to the side, out of the view of the banquet guest, but people could go to a side room and they could wash and cleanse themselves according to their ritual. So verse 7 picks it up again. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they filled them to the brim. Now remember, these are really large, 20 to 30 gallons. Specifically, someone gives us some detail here. John says, write to the brim. My kids think it's really funny when I ask for a glass of water and they fill it to the brim and then hand it to me so that it'll slap all over my arm. That's what's going on here. The word that's used here literally is at the rim of the top of the container. Look at the word, gamidzo, to fill entirely, be full. So Jesus says, gamidzo them, fill it up completely. It's an entire filling. Now, whether they emptied it out first and then filled it with fresh water, we don't know, but it's clearly a topping off. Does that not seem like a really insignificant detail? But when we see that this is through the eyes of an eyewitness, somebody who was actually there, he's looking through his lenses and remembering it was right to the very top. There's a reason for that. First of all, you can't add anything to it. It's just water up to the very top. No one's walking by and they've got a bunch of grapes and they're squeezing them in there. That's not how you make wine. So that's not what's going on here. Jesus said, completely full of water. Understand, someone had to carry that water. And because of my background in aviation, when I'm reading this a couple weeks ago, I'm looking at this and thinking, wow, eight pounds per gallon, six containers, 20 to 30 gallons each. There's a thousand pounds of water there. Somebody had to go to the well and haul all that water from the well all the way back and top off all those containers. Now, in the midst of this setting where there's a first century wedding, if you're the servant there, the last thing you want to be doing is be distracted by somebody telling you to go to the well and get some water. Now, this guy has sent them off to do this thing, but I'm thinking in the minds of the servants, they've got a crisis on their hands. They've run out of wine at this huge social event, and yet Jesus is telling them, go do this. And this is what I notice out of this. I want you to really key in on this. The role that God calls us to many times does not make sense to us. If we're one of those servants and we're going about our task and God says, hey, stop, I want you to go do this. And it makes no sense because no one's ever made water into wine before. They don't know that they're about to be part of the work of God. But they do what they're supposed to. They go ahead and they fill it up. This is reminded to me because of what John wrote earlier about the grace of God and how abundant he is. Look at what he says in John 1.16 on the screen. We read this a couple weeks ago. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. We get to see now the abundance of God. Jesus didn't just make a flask of wine. He's making a thousand pounds of water turn into wine. And someone carried it and got to play a role in working with God as they filled these stone containers. So such a large amount, about 180 gallons by my calculations, is more than enough to last for the rest of the celebration. Because they're getting to the end of the wedding. 
This is near the very end, as you're going to see in just a minute. So they've got this generous remaining portion left over. What a great wedding gift. This is God just blessing this couple. Verse 8, And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So the pots are gamidzo. They're flowing over. They've got right to the brim, a thousand pounds of water, all these stone pots. And he says, Take it to the head waiter. Now, this is in keeping with the custom of the day because the head waiter always tasted all the wine first, tasted all the food first to make sure it's appropriate for the banquet setting that people should be taking it in. Now, imagine again if you're one of those servants and you just carried a thousand pounds of water from the well and you know these are ceremonial cleansing stone bases. And now this guy who just told you to carry a thousand pounds of water is now telling you to dip it in and take water, ceremonial cleansing water, to the head waiter. He's going to have our jobs. That's got to be what's going through their head because no one's ever done this before. Now, something very remarkable, I believe, begins to happen here. There's several things going on. First of all, we understand that there's an aging process today to wine, don't we? We know, and I've done research. I told you I don't consume it myself, but I did some research on your behalf this week, and I'm looking at the aging process of wine, and I found out that really good wine begins to get to the point where you want to consume it after five years. Up to 20 years becomes really delectable, and 20 years and older, if it's really good stuff, it just gets better and better and better because it just continues to age. But we see God bypassing The aging process, the fermentation process is not an issue to him. He bypasses the laws of nature and completely moves right on through it. Jesus even spoke to the issue of old wine himself when he talked about this in a parable. Look with me on the screen at Luke 5.39. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. So the older stuff is really the richer And we see God went right past the fermentation process. Here's the second thing I see going on. I'm not a physicist, don't even want to pretend to be, not a microbiologist, but I understand that wine weighs 10 pounds per gallon. Water weighs 8 pounds per gallon. And this stuff is being converted into wine, which means it takes up greater mass. So there's a change on the molecular level. There's no longer two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. It's now shifted in its molecular structure to the degree, as you're going to see in just a minute, that this turns into really rich vino, as the Italians would say. This headmaster sees it. I want you in the church, especially if you grew up, to really let this settle in because there's a temptation just to blow by this miracle. It's the first one. It's not that important. And besides, nobody's dying or anything. It doesn't seem all that significant. But God saw it significant enough to have it written down by John all those years later for us to read today. Do you think in a culture where wine was part of everything they did that the headmaster who had responsibility to steward this event could tell the difference between the cheap stuff and the really good stuff? Absolutely. This head waiter is very impressed. Watch with me in verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drew the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. Do you think that the groom is nervous at this point? 
He's responsible for the supplies of this event. He doesn't know that Jesus just turned the water into wine. And now he's getting a phone call from the head waiter. And he takes the walk, and the head waiter calls him aside to have a conversation with him. I'm thinking at this point, the groom, knowing, knowing his provisions were low, were thinking he's about to say, you've run out of supplies. But instead, he has a more remarkable comment to him because the water had become wine. A thousand pounds of water just now became 1,200 pounds of wine, the finest wine ever produced. Think with me about this. Does God make junk? Absolutely not. Think with me back to the garden, the days of creation. Everything that God created, he looked and he said it was very good. So God only makes good. And this is just created from the hand of God. I'm not a consumer of wine, but I'm thinking this is the finest wine that's ever been produced on planet Earth, and it's right from the hand of God. And the Lord God brought it into existence. We're talking Genesis, folks. A creation. So Jesus brings this forth. How good? Good enough for the head waiter to interrupt the ceremonies and pull the groom away from the bridal party and say, hey, come here. We gotta have a conversation because he's astounded by the high quality. Look with me at the next verse. This is where it wraps up, verse 10. And said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So what looks like certain shame for the groom has turned into fame for the groom. All of a sudden, he's a rock star. you got the best stuff. As a matter of fact, there's a specific word that's used here. The head waiter uses the word kalos. Look at the screen. Beautiful, valuable, or virtuous. You've used the beautiful vino. You've got the very best vintage out. Everybody else waits till everybody's drunk and they serve the cheap stuff. You've got the very best stuff. He uses a phrase here where he says, people have drunk freely, meaning they've had too much to drink. Literally, they're intoxicated. The word that's used here is methuo. Look with me on the screen. You see the definition for it. To drink to intoxication, to get drunk, or to make or be drunken. So it must have been getting really late in the celebration because of his observation. He's saying, people wait until the very end. They don't serve this kind of stuff. You've got the best stuff out here now. How does, this, how does this happen? Now, there's individuals who look at that and say, well, Jesus probably made grape juice. Probably produced maybe the two-thirds water and one-third wine. Now, look at the words that's used by the waiter really closely. He uses the word kalos, the beautiful, virtuous stuff. And he says, most people wait until they're intoxicated and they bring out the junk, but you brought out the good stuff. And it's the same word that Paul uses when he says, don't get drunk. Look with me on the screen, Ephesians 5.18. And be not methuo, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So you can't have it both ways. It either means drunken or it doesn't. And in this case, we see that Jesus produced something that's very, very rich just to bless these people. Verse 11. This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory and his disciples believed in him. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how does God's glory get magnified through this event? How does his glory 
get focused in on as a result of this. And I'm thinking back to John 1. John 1.14, this is what it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. So John's thinking forward and backward at the same time, and he's saying, we saw His glory? And I remember that moment when He made the wine, and it wasn't that He made the wine, church. It's that He was capable of making it, and it pointed to something greater. That's what a miracle is, a sign It points to something bigger than the event itself, the one who performed it. And so as a result of it, they believed in him because he's greater than they understood. Just a couple days before, they decided to hitch their wagon to him. He's the Messiah. John announced him. We believe he's the guy. And now they get to this event and they see he commands nature. And as a result, his disciples believed in him. So what does God's provision look like? There's a couple things that jumped out at me, both the expected and the unexpected provision of God. First of all, what Jesus creates is the best. What he gives us, what he provides for you is always the best. It's never second class. And it's not a small quantity as we see here. It's more than what's needed. We just think sometimes by our gauge it's not enough. But God is always abundant. His blessings are bountiful, generous to us. And God's goodness and grace abound, just flowing out without measure. They've got all this leftover material, and they're just blessed beyond measure. This is the last point I want you to take home with you today, because this one really struck me, though. You notice that this is not an issue of hunger. There's nobody blind at the wedding. There's nobody that's crippled. There's nobody on the verge of death. This is a social event. And that's what Jesus records for us, a non-critical event. Why? I see that God wants us to know, as a result of studying this text, that he's interested in the little things that affect us. This is not a necessity. This is a luxury. And yet God's concerned even with the luxuries. The all-powerful God is never overtaxed by you asking him the littlest things. Does God care about your car keys being lost? Yeah, God cares about lost car keys. God cares about flat tires on the side of the road. God cares when your job changes or something's threatened or when your finances are in the negative. Don't hesitate to take those things to him because we can see in Scripture God cares about the little things that affect his children. That's what I take away out of this. So would you join me in praying about this, that God will just really seal this in our heart? We'll remember that these things are important to him. Let's pray. Father, our time seems to just flown by again, and yet we've got these words that are in our head now as a result of studying your text. And I ask God that you would help us to remember you are intimately concerned with even the littlest things. So, Father, I ask for your church, for every person here in this auditorium, you'd help us to remember you are intimately concerned with the things that affect us, and you involve yourself in them when we ask. Father, help us also remember it may not be the answer that we want. And many times I'm guilty of that, my Father, wanting things one way, and I'm sure many of my brothers and sisters are the same thing. But help us, Father, to be like Mary, to be willing to surrender and just step back and say whatever you want to do. 
Uh, that's what I ask for us, Father, as we leave here today, that we'd be willing to offer these issues that are in our life up to you and surrender them to you for your work. Now, God, we ask all these things would be blessed according to your purpose and that you would bless us as a result of being here today. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hope you have a great week.